unfiltered view of where I get to put anything I want in the house, which is the unfinished basement of my house. So you're doing the high-tech stuff, and now you're involved in agriculture. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. What's going on? Yeah, so my career as an engineer, I've been about 30 years of working as an engineer from automotive industry and to medical devices and then 22 big old years at Intel. And while I was at Intel, it was a long time and I did a lot of moving around. I was always getting curious about how another part of the business worked and how does that part work? And what do we even sell these things? You know, like you're in a technical field and you're solving problems. You could live your whole career and not really understand where it's even going. You're just looking at a chart and you're trying to get it in, but that wasn't me. So I kept on popping around and doing different stuff and then moved up to Portland about 10 years ago, which is what gave me a broader exposure to business development and working on the business unit side. And having done a bunch of things, I was always looking outside. I did an MBA and thought about other businesses and I was always really curious. And my wife has got her own business and I've helped her with that. And so came to a point in January or really the end of last year where they were asking if anybody wanted to volunteer to leave. And with the amount of time I'd been at Intel, it was just like a year's worth of pay. And it wasn't really an easy decision per se, but like in the end, I was just like, I can't not give myself a chance to try something right. different. I don't know when an opportunity like this is going to come back around. I had Jen's hand over my hand and we clicked the mouse together <laughs> when I applied. But initially it was early January and a couple of ski trips with the family. And I already was interviewing with other businesses within like the data center space or within the computer space. But really deep down inside, I wanted to do something totally different and I just didn't know what it was. And so... I got connected with this guy, Arnold Howard, who I'd worked with at Intel many years ago. And he's friends with a guy who I was sitting on a panel discussion with. And he wanted to start up a consulting group in New Mexico. And he asked me to join him. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to get rolling, get some contracts in place. We get down there. And what started presenting itself is that there's a lot of interesting opportunities with science there's like los alamos and sandia and the universities and all that but there was a real cluster of companies that had been developed and had were early in the market with cannabis technology or technologies applied to cannabis and all of them 
aspire for more than cannabis. Mm, but cannabis has the disruption within agriculture as it is. It offered up a yield sensitive, high value crop in like a newly legal market. And all of a sudden there was a lot of innovation coming in that I kept seeing, which was like driven from the commercial side. It's not coming out of universities that much, or it's not coming from the traditional path. It was like this whole market exploded and they needed the sophistication and the tools in order to improve their profitability. And that just brought a whole bunch of different opportunity for science and AI and different things to come in. And then that's what got me so excited was this disruption of cannabis and what it really meant to the overall agricultural space. That's a big leap. So you have this high-tech background at Intel mm -hmm. and next thing yeah. you're in involved with cannabis yeah. so what's the connection with with new mexico is that a hotbed for the cannabis industry yeah so the connection there first of all if you'd asked me three months ago if i'd be working with cannabis that wasn't what i was going for that wasn't really on my mind what you have in new mexico which is really unique is as i said before the scientific research going on in new mexico you know, if you look at it, I think one of the statistics is more PhDs per capita than any state in the union. Because wow. you have the national labs and the universities. And you have a place where it, it's just a, like from a climate perspective and a history perspective, it's just different. You can visit the Trinity site where the first bomb was dropped and you can drive up to Los Alamos and... You can, uh, you can hike all the hiking trails in the Sangre de Cristos that, that Oppenheimer used to hike and he named after his wives and daughters. Like, it's all so present, the science within New Mexico, and they have very strong technical universities that are affordable. So as opposed to being maybe in Cambridge or in Boston or in San Francisco, like you have a place that's actually quite livable for people to take some time to explore science and to develop science. And you don't get that everywhere. And then the legalization of cannabis came to New Mexico. And so those over the past five to eight years, those worlds have come together. And if I contrast it with Portland, Portland's got shoe designers and software companies and there's Intel, things are, from a startup perspective, they're not very science-based from what I found. They were either design, PR, advertising, food businesses, breweries, that kind of thing. But not like somebody's like trying to strike a new type of plasma or something like that. It's just not, it's more engineering than it is science. So when you talk in terms of science, are we talking about, what is it called, the hybridization of plants, that whole yeah. area, genetics, or is it fairly broad spectrum? It's any number of things, but what I observe, whatever, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. <coughs> I don't know if my dad's watching this, <laughs> but we'd, we'd sneak <laughs> into Greenwich Village and buy a, we'd be thrilled to have a dime bag of pot that we would then take home and smoke in the park. And that whole 
taboo aspect and the counterculture. Maybe that's the way I was thinking about it. It's a little Mm -hmm. transgressive. It's a little dangerous. Yeah. Now, if you go into a dispensary today, you got people that look like your uncle wearing New Balance walking shoes and Costco sweatshirt, and they're they're buying cannabis for their personal use. So it's not the same marketplace. Now, there are, not to say that it's completely square, because it's not, but what you're having now is like a broader base of consumers who are looking for more than just getting weird. They may be using it for chronic pain, or they may be using it for anxiety disorders, or they may be going through chemo and having difficulty with their hunger. So they're using it for these reasons. And then unboxing the potentials of the different genetic strains for CBD or THCA, where people aren't even looking for a psychoactive. They're just looking for treatment for inflammation. And then on the other side, let's say on the party side, if you're enjoying a little cannabis edible with your wife on a night away from the kids, or kids may be upstairs, who knows? (laughs) But you don't want to be knocked on your butt one night, and then the next night, try the same thing, and you don't feel anything. Or worse yet, the other way. Well, that was a nice little thing. And we watched the movie and it was fun and I slept well. And then I took the same thing again and I was just out of my mind and I couldn't sleep well and it screwed me up the next day because I was mentally fatigued or whatever. Like the repeatability and specific experiences that are coming from cannabis now as it matures you got to have a lot of science and engineering behind that to be able to repeatedly deliver that. Right. On one hand, it's about making for a better product. And then on the other hand, it's not just a gold rush anymore where just having it is the thrill. Mm-hmm. The pricing is coming down and there's things on sale. So if you're in tighter margin control, then you're going to scaling operations and adding engineering expertise and lean and six sigma. And now it's basically, I see so many parallels to making semiconductors in cannabis. How do you, mm-hmm. how do you prove that it worked? How do you know you didn't prove? How do you know? I was talking to a guy recently. It's like, you have a problem, you throw five things at it and it goes away. Then now you got to do those five things all the time. We did that in semiconductors Mm -hmm. all the time. Nobody knew which one of the five did it, but we did all five. You're going to get your costs are going to go up if you're not understanding the mechanisms of what's affecting your yield and quality. They're they're doing DOEs and they're doing multivariate analysis. And it's becoming the thing that's going to be needed in order to compete and make something repeatable. Ed, you bring up an interesting point. You draw the parallel with manufacturing, right? Mm -hmm. So you're tapping into your background at Intel. And that makes me think of quality control measures. So you also mentioned that cannabis, it's not, it's, it has recreational uses. Of course, we all know that, but now if there's a medicinal use and there's actual prescriptions, I think that draws into those parallels that you were describing from a manufacturing perspective. Yeah. 
would say the biggest thing I'm learning is about all the ways that the plant is used, whether it's the oils that are on the plant or whether the plant is being turned into smoke and inhaled. Each one of those have a different effect. If you're just taking the oils from the plant and putting it on an inflamed joint, you're not going to be getting high from that. And I'm, let's see, I'm just learning as I go, so I'm not a huge expert on all this. But what I will say is that the sophistication needed from a manufacturing perspective is, it reminds me of, like, when you have a, a business that dominates a marketplace, and then it's a cash. I learned about these things in business school left and right. Like the automotive, the American automobile manufacturing industry in, in the 60s and 70s, they were drinking beer on the line. You'd buy a car and there'd be a beer can in the door panel. And they would go together <laughs> in such poor ways. And you'd have lemons and lemon laws and all this other stuff. Who cared for that? They weren't feeling the pinch because they were making a ton of money. Just getting the car out was enough to meet what the market wanted. Right. And then, mm. you know, that Honda Civic came in and the Japanese cars, and they were like, nobody's going to want one of those. <laughs> what that competition or the coopetition, as they say, drove things to get better, right? Now, the parallel in my mind is in agriculture and agricultural technology, you know, this cannabis is shaking up traditional farming in that they've been thrown into these situations to come up with innovation and new chemistries and new ways of growing indoors because it was originally a security thing we're growing it inside so nobody knows what we're growing now it's become a whole science of growing things in ventilation there's a company called hip horticulture that i'm working with that was just like a retail racking company. You go to the foot locker and you get the shoe and they go in the back and they crank the thing and the shelves move around. To them, Amazon was rising up and people weren't going to malls anymore and their business was flatlining and they saw indoor farming and indoor cannabis in 2017 or so as like a way to drive growth. So they adapted what they had to do racking for cannabis. And now they're setting out to design racking systems for tomatoes and strawberries and spinach and greens. But this is like four or five years old. This is very new, like for when they just decided to do this. So maybe they're more efficiently going to be, we're going to be able to make healthy greens cheaper than growing them in a field. But Growing them in a field with people picking the greens who are not being treated well, maybe undocumented people, maybe E. coli, and then you put it on a truck and drive it to Minnesota from Texas, that's the beer can and the door panel to me. That's the like, we just, this is the way we do it and it's fine because we get the salad there and it'll last for two days before it gets all mushy in your fridge. But if we start producing food that's going to stay good for 20 days... And you can buy that big mm -hmm. tub, you know, the big tub of salad where you're like, I don't know if we're going to finish this, but it's only $3, <laughs> you know, that your right. greens are going to stay fresher longer. 
So this is a disruption. Wow. I think it's going to deliver technology across agriculture that's mm -hmm. going to make our planet cleaner and more people are going to get better food. And it's just a, it's just a huge, large potential. You mentioned spoilage and the ability uh -huh. to have food lasting longer by applying some of these newer techniques, newer technologies. What's happening in that arena? Is there innovations in that space as well? Sure. They're growing crops indoors without soil hmm. where all the nutrients are being delivered at hydroponics where they're delivering the nutrients in through the water. <clears throat> there's, there's one I found, I'll keep specifics out of it. They're building these commercial greenhouse operations in rural parts of the country that you are poor, like Northwestern Arkansas and Louisiana, Northeastern Louisiana. And you think about these, you don't even think about these places, but actually if they're going to get in the same way where you're in Minneapolis and you're coming from the same place, you know, there's a lot more trucks going up to Minneapolis than they are going into Northeast Louisiana. So where do they get their fresh greens from? Where do they get their nutritious food from? They're getting it through going to Walmart or taking a drive somewhere, but Maybe they don't have a reliable car. So putting these distributed agricultural greenhouses and that are running completely with water, that there's always something to come up, right? And some mold or infestation or something that's coming in. But it's a lot cleaner than the operations that they've had and the dirt infests and E. coli coming into lettuces and stuff. And then one more thing, I don't know if I'm addressing you, but an exciting part of it too is what about new types of vegetables that become a desirable part of what the market wants? Like there's one about what's like an arugula that tastes like wasabi. <laughs> They're engineering different <laughs> strains of these greens that may have just like a micro customer base, but mm -hmm. it's distributed. So the customer can get what it wants and chefs can come up with new ways of creating healthier foods. So from a customer now, Ed, perspective you... and a grower perspective, it's all changing. Wow. Now, when you mentioned the, as I'll call it, the wasabi greens, which I yeah. wouldn't mind trying some wasabi greens, <laughs> are we talking, right? So there was a whole thing around genetically modified food versus yeah. hybridization. So is it a combination, one or the other? How would you distinguish the two there? Gosh, honestly, I don't know. I, okay. I think it's more just a case of getting people to cross different plants together to create different options of greens and make a diverse. So we're not eating from the same stupid bag salad as we're being thrown at all the time. <laughs> oh, it's, that's fascinating and yeah. definitely an appeal for me. I love that there could be additional choices and options, right? So mm -hmm. Your mixed green, right? Your romaine. So this is a big, it could be a big change. And I know a lot of folks are looking for that level of variety. Another point that came up, I think that's being covered here is there's a whole conversation around food deserts. 
Yeah. And the, you mentioned rural, rural communities and other areas, even in around Chicago or some urban centers where yeah. just a lack of really good food sounds like this is a, there's an opportunity here. Yeah, for sure. And I was having a great conversation with a friend of mine who grew up in a food desert and he was raised by his grandmother and she worked like three jobs in order to keep everything going. If you're ignorant and you're looking at it from the outside and saying food desert in a major city, that just doesn't make any sense. Like, why don't they just go to Safeway and buy what they need? But it's so much more than that within these communities where, you know, as I was saying, my friend who was raised by his grandmother and she was working multiple jobs. And so he had Stouffer's entrees to throw in and that's what he ate. And not only did they not have a large refrigerator, but meal planning, we just, I don't know. Jen and I are still messing around with meal planning every day and trying to figure out what we're going to put on the table. And we're both working at home with basically open-ended budgets for buying whatever we want. Well, think about if you're working three jobs and raising kids by yourself, like how much effort do you have to put into like meal planning to get healthy food? And then maybe you don't have a car, so you got to take the bus and maybe one time you go to the Safeway and you do a good job that week, but like over and over again, you just get beat down by it. And then there's no, they're just not bringing that type of food into those communities because they don't think it's, it's not being bought. It's not being purchased mm -hmm. with Scout Strategy, the company I'm working with. They come in into the food deserts and build an indoor farm. And then they work on getting everyone in the community trained for employment from packaging to delivery all the way up into all the STEM fields that are required to keep it running. And then there's a school's education layer where they're getting kids to come in like middle school kids where they're getting taught how to cook, not in general, but this is how you cook this meal. And then we're going to deliver the components of that meal to your house. And then instead of you throwing the Swanson dinner into the frit into the oven, like you get the box and you cook it and you cook dinner for your family. And there's not every right. kid's going to want to do that, but there's a hell of a lot of them that will. So mm -hmm. it's more, it's more of an investment into the community at a functional level what I'm seeing being done by Scout than just like dropping something in and plugging it in and leaving. It takes yeah. more than just a first level giveaway in order to make a sustaining impact on a positive way to these communities. And I'm, I'm learning about all the good stuff that can be done. Wow. This is amazing. There's definitely a lot happening and you look at agriculture just at a high level, oftentimes you don't think about the tech side of things. You've covered several huge areas that are beyond this yeah. particular episode. There's a lot to give. Farming is becoming a major at universities. I think indoor agriculture is going to become a hot major. And then the, the kids are going to be learning about PID loops and control systems and vision systems and Wow. plant nutrition and all that. And it's, it, we should really spend some time talking about it. I'd love oh, to come yeah. back.
That would be amazing. And we haven't mentioned AI. I have mm -hmm. a little app on my iPhone. You scan a plant, it'll tell you exactly what the plant is. It'll give its health conditions. So there's a lot of tech going into all of this. There sure so, is. And how much can benefit from targeted, what's called lean cultivation. It's one thing to have a gadget, but when you have something that's efficiently directing resources so that they're doing just what they need to do and not just like being wasteful, huge opportunities there in different food production indoors and outdoors. So let's set, let's do it. Excellent. Yeah, I definitely look forward to it. Folks who've listened to this podcast want to get a bit more information about what you're up to, some of what's happening in ag tech. What would, what did they, what would they do other than tuning into the next episode? Of yeah, our website is agtech.bio, A-G-T-E-C-H dot B-I-O. And then under agtechbiopdx is our Instagram account. And we have Twitter going on. And then I'm an old corporate guy, so I'm still hanging out in LinkedIn. So try and find me on LinkedIn and catch my stories. And if you make note of the podcast, that'd be really wonderful too. I appreciate you joining it and I look forward to All right. the next time. Right Thank on. Maybe doing. I'll have the basement cleaned up by then. <laughs> See ya. Awesome. All right. right Bye-bye. Bye. Thank on. You. Bye. -bye. Bye.